This is The Guardian. Today, it's been three years since the United Kingdom left the EU. Where has Brexit left us? It's excruciating to think back to the Brexit referendum of 2016. So I won't linger on it for too long. There were furious debates. Now this is a once in a lifetime chance. Intense public campaigns. Three, can you hear me at the back? Yeah! And as Heather Stewart, then The Guardian's political editor, remembers, an agonising litany of promises. So you remember that very controversial £350 million a week for the NHS on the side of the bus? Huge sums of money of huge sums of money, of £350 million a week. And yes, let us take back control of our borders. Ending uncontrolled migration from the EU. Because I want a better deal for the people of this country. And we would do lots of great free trade deals with, with countries outside the EU, which would give our companies, our exporters, lots of opportunities. If we burst out of the shackles of Brussels, we would be able to begin immediately with those long-neglected free trade opportunities, which we can't do at the moment. And then there was this broader sort of nebulous idea of taking back control. Take 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 back control. This was the Brexit Boris Johnson sold to 52% of the public who voted that they wanted out of the customs union, out of the single market, out of Europe and to see an end to freedom of movement and goods. What could go wrong? I really vividly remember going to one press conference when I was covering the campaign. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming along this morning. Thank you. Where you had George Osborne and Ed Balls and Vince Cable all for some reason that now escapes me in a hangar in Stansted, um, standing in front of a Ryanair plane and all of them really stressing the economic damage that, that Brexit would do. Voting to leave the EU now really is a one-way ticket to a poorer Britain, not just in the short term, but for decades to come. But, you know, if you were the Vote Leave campaign, we had this phrase that, that was bandied around a lot. The point, I think, to say is... Of Project Fear. Project Fear. There was an idea that... The politicians who were warning you about the economic consequences of Brexit were just trying to frighten you. But now, in 2023, it's estimated that exports to the EU have fallen by about a quarter. As many as one million Europeans have left the UK. And the country's economy has shrunk in comparison to its European counterparts. I think it's certainly true to say that problems that companies are now experiencing are not solely caused by Brexit, but it's quite hard to identify many economic upsides, I think, is the, is the sort of kindest way that, <laughs> that you could put it. In trade and immigration, on funding and farming, we look at what Brexit has really meant for people and businesses in Britain. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus... Living with Brexit's broken promises. Lee 
Isra Carroll, you're the Guardian's Brexit correspondent, and I imagine you've had quite the few years on this beat. Recently, you visited Ebu Vale in Wales. Can you tell me why there and what it's like? Ebu Vale is about 40 minutes north of Cardiff in really beautiful countryside close to the Brecon Beacons National Park. It's an old steel town. The valley of Ebu Vale used to be home to the largest steelworks in Europe, but production ended in 2002, leaving only historic buildings and high unemployment. The place had suffered huge deprivation. There were lack of jobs, like many places across Britain. And like a lot of towns along what they called the Brexit Arc, which was a road going from the border of England arcing over Cardiff, they more or less all voted for Brexit. And it was the town that uh, had the highest leave vote in the referendum in Wales, 62% pro-Brexit. And it was also a huge beneficiary of EU funds. And it became a sort of media centre because people were so shocked that a town like that, that had got so much money from the EU, had decided to vote to leave. And I distinctly remember back in 2016, I think it was Radio 5, that had camped outside this sports centre funded by the EU. I think it cost 15 million. It wouldn't look out of place in the Olympic Park in London. It's that significant, hulking building. And people were basically saying, look, we didn't want a sports centre, we wanted jobs. That's all it is. Yeah. It's cosmetic. You know, if you have somebody dying, you don't give them cosmetic surgery to keep them alive. That, that's not going to help. The town is dying. The, the borough is dying. And it needs employment. It doesn't need pretty bollard. Well, let's take a quick step back. When we talk about EU funding, what does that EU funding translate to in a town like that? Where does it go? Well, Wales had the highest per capita funding from the EU, which went into roads, bypasses, buildings, dockyards up in the northeast. And then there was a second big fund, the main fund, which was the European Social Fund, which went to deprived areas. And the idea was to get people who were, as they said, furthest away from the job market back into the job market. People who had disabilities, people who have may have had illness and lost their confidence, people who are in the casual labour workforce. It's very obvious when you go to somewhere like Ebbevale or indeed throughout the valleys in Wales that they have been a huge beneficiary of EU funds. And now, after Brexit, places like Ebbevale have lost that EU funding. How has the town and Wales coped without it? What's the picture like now? The Westminster government have promised to replace the EU funding pound for pound and just before Christmas they announced the shape of this UK Shared Prosperity Fund but the Welsh devolved government is quite angry about the, the settlement, the post-Brexit, and they claim they're going to be more than 700 million worse off. And the Westminster government, they're saying that they're not going to lose out. But in Wales and in Scotland, there is huge disappointment that the fund was so late in being allocated for the voluntary sector to deal with people, the most vulnerable in society, whether they're homeless, alcoholics, people who've got disabilities, people who have found themselves out of work through illness, injury, that has posed a real challenge. Organisations that would normally have been planning to put in bids for EU funding for 24, 2025, found that they couldn't even do that for 2023. Hundreds of organisations had to shut up shop because the replacement funding hadn't been allocated in time by Westminster. It was too late. And meanwhile, Lisa, this is all happening while the country is enduring 
a staggering cost of living crisis. What does it mean for the vulnerable people that you spoke to? Well, it means that they don't have access to those services. There was there was a general sense of, I think, despair when I spoke to the people from the voluntary sector in Wales. Just for the taste purposes, um, would you introduce yourself? Matthew Brown, Director of Operations at the Wales Council. That's Matthew Brown from the Wales Council for Voluntary Action, the main umbrella group for voluntary groups in, in Wales, told me that it was deeply frustrating. Oh, it's... Well, despair... I can't believe that such vital activity in areas that, that couldn't need it more is coming to an end at a time when demand is through the roof for services and support across the country. It, it really is disappointing and it's, gonna, it's having a huge impact on the voluntary sector and the communities that we support in Wales. And of course, Wales isn't the only place that benefited from significant EU money before Brexit. Lisa, how are other places in the UK working without it? Scotland say that they will lose out on about £340 million in the the post-Brexit system. And the employment minister there, Richard Lockhead, has said that they have repeatedly pressed Westminster for clarity on funds. And the shortfall shows that the fund is all about levelling up. It's not actually about replacing EU funding. We're in Cornwall here in the UK. This is a place that voted overwhelmingly for Brexit, and now it's dealing with the reality of life after the EU. The county of Cornwall... But down in Cornwall, I spoke to one of the councillors down there. They are exceptionally pleased with what um, their allocation is, and more pleased that they don't have to determine where the money goes through some sort of EU rule based on a deprivation index and thinks it's going to be far more equitable. And where does that funding come from? Where does the, how does the UK Prosperity Fund suddenly magic itself up? Under the divorce agreement, the funds that the UK used to give to the EU now stay within the Treasury so they can allocate the money as they please. In total, there was 11 billion over seven years that went into these two specific funds. just walking up to the sports centre and I've just run into somebody who's going up with a brand new little baby. Yes, he's seven weeks today. Seven weeks, congratulations. Thank you very much. And um, what are you going to do at the sports centre? Um, and going back to Wales, what did people tell you in Ebbyvale about the quality of their lives post-Brexit and what they thought now about their decision to vote leave? They voted for Brexit because they expected jobs and it didn't happen. So I think what they're doing now is really questioning why they voted for Brexit. Oh, the baby's hungry. Maybe so. Uh, maybe with Brexit, people are voting to leave because they maybe don't fully understand the implications it has. And one chap I spoke to outside the sports centre explained that people had misread the promises, um, vote leave promises of taking back control and taking back control of the money. A lot of people thought that meant that money would suddenly start trickling into local economies and that wasn't the case. So did you vote for for Brexit? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you hope to get out of the... Um, Just more opportunities like job ways and be on our own type of thing and be more independent. When you speak to people outside the sports centre now, I just a, a random stroke poll of four or five people I spoke to. All of them, all of them said they would not vote for Brexit now. It's not what, what they wanted, really. I think is people have regretted in a lot of ways what they voted for then. That's the thing. Like I think most of us would have said to stay in now, given the fact that although we voted to come out, we didn't get what we wanted from it. 
because we all thought by coming out we would get more. But by coming out, all we've done is lost all the good things that we had and kept all the things we didn't want. Heather Stewart, you're a special correspondent for The Guardian and you were the paper's political editor during Brexit. As we both remember, immigration and jobs took up a lot of oxygen in the Leave campaign. Now, just to recap that roller coaster, what were the key pledges? So right from quite near the start of the campaign, the general sense was we'll be in control of this, you know, because we had had very uh, significant migration from EU countries and that had been quite noticeable to the public. Many people saw it as a huge plus economically, arguably it was a huge plus, but it, it also raised arguments about, you know, were some of these people displacing UK workers out of jobs that they could otherwise have done? So it sort of tapped into a sense that things were out of control. Arguably, there's a sort of racist undertone to some of that, certainly to the to some of the campaigning that you saw. It sort of tapped into some quite unpleasant instincts, perhaps, but it was also partly an economic argument. It was, it was about, we'll be able to pick and choose. We'll be able to bring in the people that we want, the sort of highly skilled workers who are going to bring jobs and create jobs, and we'll be able to keep out people who are, you know, potentially displacing UK workers. So that was, that was, the, that was the idea. So I'm standing on the side of a mountain uh, in the Cairngorms, in the snow, looking down over an absolute winter wonderland. It's beautiful up here. There are skiers sort of trudging past or getting back into their cars, people clearing the snow off the roads. It's really, um, really beautiful and very cold. And we've spent the day... Heather, you went to Cairngorms for your reporting in Scotland. Why did you go there and who did you meet? So um, there are particular industries that are being very hard hit by the new migration system. The big change that that makes is low skilled workers or low paid workers, I should say, many of them we arguably are very skilled, but low paid workers um, can no longer come. And, And there are particular sectors that have been very hard hit. Hospitality and tourism are among those. And Um, A number of sort of experts had said to me, this is particularly bad in sort of far flung or rural areas where there isn't necessarily a big local population to kind of draw on. So um, it made sense to go to Aviemore, which is a ski resort in the winter. It's a sort of walking, climbing resort in the summer. So Heather, who did you meet there when you went? So the first business I visited, which I sort of pulled up to in on a sort of dark, freezing cold evening, was the Rowan Tree Hotel, which is just outside the centre of Aviemore by a loch, you know, sort of beautiful mountain view, which I didn't see until the, the sun came up the next morning. But, um, you know, it's, sort of, it's a sort of cosy country hotel. And I met the, the owners there, uh, Johnny and Tamasina Cassidy, who were sort of busy with the serving the, the evening customers when I first arrived. But we, we sat down and, and we had a bit of a chat the next morning about how they've seen things change since Brexit in the way that they run their business. What did they tell you? Yeah, so they were very clear that Brexit was not the only factor at play. And that was true of all of the various businesses around the area that I met. But they were saying, you know, they did have a group of EU workers. They felt it had worked well, that they were very hard workers. And of course, that's just not an option since Brexit. And you know, when I sort of asked them, 
okay, how have you had to adjust? I mean, essentially, they said they're working harder. You know, they're, they're having to do more of the jobs around the place. At one point while I was there, you know, Tamasina was was with a colleague who was who was showing her how to sort of perfect her barista coffees, you know, how to, how to make the perfect latte and so on. And it was, you know, maybe things that they she wouldn't have had to do so much. And they've also got staff staying in a couple of their guest rooms, again, as a way of trying to sort of offer something to local people. Affordable housing is a real problem in that area. And that was something that people brought up over and over again. And several of the employers that I spoke to, you know, said they'd had to be quite innovative and clever in kind of filling their rotors, as it were. So maybe they were using students more, maybe they were offering more part-time roles to try and attract perhaps, you know, parents back into work who might not have been in work. They were all having to sort of box and cocks to try and make things work. So the irony is that, of course, it is harder to have EU workers now doing those jobs and there are now more jobs for British workers, but we don't have the workforce to fulfil them. Yeah, I think that that absolutely seems to be an issue. And interestingly, I was talking to the Meat Processors Association and, you know, they were talking about the Philippines as being quite a big country for them. So they're bringing in quite a, quite a lot of Filipino butchers, but... Um, they estimated that once you've paid for the visa and perhaps for flights to bring someone over for temporary accommodation while you um, get them set up and the various other sort of bits of bureaucracy, they they were suggesting it can cost them up to £12,000 per butcher. And of course, it doesn't deal with the jobs sort of lower down the income scale for which you, you cannot bring anyone in. Heather, it's no secret that a big part of the Brexit vote revolved around promises made on immigration which was an especially discomforting experience for people like me to see how much people wanted to vote against, you know, people who made their lives here, been working here, making the country function and all the rest of it. And, you know, there was also this manipulative narrative where British people were led to believe that if there were fewer migrants in the UK, that it would be to their benefit. It was obviously divisive and very emotional. How is that now looking well, it's interesting because migration absolutely hasn't fallen and net migration hasn't fallen. And in fact, it's it's very high historically. And so net migration in the year to June was, was actually a record. It was 504,000. Now that's driven by some special factors. So we've, of course, we've had the Homes for Ukraine scheme. We've also welcomed quite a lot of Hong Kongers because of the sort of Chinese clamp down there. But nevertheless, what has not happened since Brexit is is us sort of closing the door to migration. You know, we're not pulling up the drawbridge but the sort of pattern of who we're bringing in and where they're coming from and what kinds of jobs they're going into has really, really radically changed. There were just over 145,000 skilled worker visas issued in the year to June. Now, more than 40% of those were for the health sector. So a big a big factor is, you know, we are losing a lot of workers out of the NHS and we are sort of desperately pulling people in from a whole range of countries to fill those roles. The other interesting thing that's happened is the mix of countries that people are coming from has changed a lot. So um, looking at these worker visas, the biggest source countries for those were India, were Nigeria, were the Philippines. You know, so it's a sort of different mix of countries to that very big wave of EU migration that we had. But you know, it's it, it's it's interesting how the reality slightly cuts against perhaps some of that really quite unpleasant rhetoric that, as you say, we saw um, during the during the campaign. Heather, when he was spearheading that Leave campaign, Boris Johnson did promise that there would be more jobs and better wages for British workers if cheap labour from the EU was reduced. Now, 
This is one of the few Johnson promises that may have come to fruition, albeit not how he'd planned at all. Heather, can you tell me how the British labour market is currently faring? Yeah, so it's very, very tight. We have worker shortages across quite a lot of sectors. You know, unemployment remains remains very low and wages certainly in the private sector, are being driven up. So we've seen very high inflation. So not surprisingly, workers are arguing for higher wages because they're seeing the costs of everything, cost of living go up very dramatically. Um, And employers are really, you know, struggling to find the staff that they need. And so they are having to keep increasing pay. And that's also a big factor behind this wave of strikes that we've seen. Strikes were a defining issue of 2022 and the new year looks set to start in the same vein. The Royal College of Nursing today announced fresh industrial action for January in England unless the government starts talks about pay. Part of what the health unions will tell you, for example, is, you know, we've got huge shortages of staff. We can't fill them if you don't give us better pay and conditions. But I think Brexit is one factor that's driving these sort of labour shortages and therefore driving rising wages, but it's only one. So while you're in Wales, you also focus your reporting on the farming industry. Can you remind me how central agriculture was when it came to Britain's post-Brexit vision? So the old system relied on the common agricultural policy, which was devised in the 60s and subsidised farmers as a means of bringing farmers' income up to levels of people in other sectors. And that meant there was a one-size-fits-all rule farmers get a certain amount per acre per hectare. So James Dyson, who has large farming interests in in various parts of England, got more than 5 million European funding since the referendum. Now, that was a figure from 2019. So one of the main criticisms of CAP, not just in the UK, but across the EU, is that the money went to farmers, rich and poor. How does abolishing that main subsidy, the common agricultural policy, how does it work for smaller farmers? Well, for smaller farmers in Wales, they will continue to get something equivalent to the cap subsidy for the next five years while they design the replacement scheme. They've started tapering off the cap payments in England. So farmers are getting 20% less from last year and that will be phased out over the next few years and disappear completely by 2028. Now, the idea is that the money that was supposed to go into cap would alternatively go into sustainable farming initiatives. So if you're a farmer who does more for the environment, there might be incentives for you. Essentially, you have to work for your money. You don't just get it because you own land. That's the idea behind it. But we don't know yet what the scheme is. And and that's, I think, one of the things that's really frustrating for farmers is they don't know what the future holds. This is just yet another piece of uncertainty that's added into an already precarious um, industry on the lower income end of the farming sector. And going back to Wales... Who did you speak to there and who did you meet about how this affects them? Yeah, I met a farmer called Ian Rickman. He's a one-man band in the far western regions of the National Park, the Brecon Beacons. Really, really beautiful. We're in a very old landscape here as well because um, just over the back of the farm there is the um, Garngor, which is an Iron Age hill fort. So there's a lot of historic activity been going on around here for thousands of years really thousands of years so generations of sheep long before we were farming here 
and it's a tough old job, sheep farming, isn't it? Yeah, it's not the easiest way to make a living. <laughs> now, farmers like him would expect an income of twenty five, twenty six thousand pounds a year. He's got about five hundred sheep. It yes, it is a tough life, um, and we we rely heavily as as upland sheep farmers. We rely heavily on farm support. Yeah. So which we used to get from the EU, obviously we don't now. Yeah. That money comes from Westminster, the Welsh Government. So that's a big concern to us because without that, the farm's not viable. Yeah. People like Ian rely and depend on the farm subsidies to keep going, to keep their heads above water. And the Environment Department's own figures show that something like 40% of farmers would go into loss if they didn't have that subsidy. And as he says, the, the, the cap subsidy goes straight out to the local economy to... People like the vets, like the farm feed suppliers, like the, the guys who come in and mend the fences or the mechanics who mend his, mend his tractor. And he, he describes the cap as the, the lifeblood of the rural economy. Lisa, what's Ian's experience been like post-Brexit? So Ian has talked about the loss of unfettered access to the single market as a big blow to sheep farmers across Britain, not just in Wales. Lamb, it's actually a much more popular meat in Europe. Something like 33% of all lamb exports go to Europe. You can't just send meat to Paris like you used to. It's been estimated that something like 60 million in paperwork costs have been added to the food export markets since Brexit. Another huge promise from the Leave campaign was the prospect of all these new trade deals that we heard a lot about. Lisa, have they materialised and what do they mean for farmers? Yeah, the, the two trade deals that the farming sector are particularly worried about are the ones, the two in New Zealand and Australia. And the farmers are very, very worried that New Zealand, which is a massive sheep farming country, will be able to sell New Zealand lamb in British supermarkets and compete with British suppliers. At the moment, that hasn't happened because all the surplus lamb in those countries goes to Asian countries and, and China in particular. But what they're worried about is that, God forbid, there should be a war in that region if China moved on Taiwan or something and then China was subject to international sanctions, that the New Zealand farmers and agricultural farmers would be rubbing their hands with glee and go, that's fine, because we've got the UK. The Farmers Union have said that they have been told by their counterparts in Australia that it's a lovely insurance policy to have. And their question is, well, where is ours? Where is the insurance policy for British farmers when things don't go well? From a farmer's point of view, there's no way you can dress those trade deals up as a good thing. I've heard farmers say that the industry was more or less chucked under a bus. Coming up, what does the impact of Brexit really look like for British businesses? What is the picture like for small businesses operating now? Did we take back control of bureaucracy and burn the red tape? I mean, Brexit was going to deliver us better trading conditions. Based on the people you spoke to, did it? Um, one of the clearest examples was a, a tea exporting business that I went to see in Reading. Vishaka Chetri Agarwal and her husband Niraj um, run this company called Tea People. And, you know, they're in this very anonymous looking industrial unit, but you open the door and there's this 
really delicious smell of kind of spices and tea and it's quite sort of warm and and uh, uh, you know welcoming in there um, but they were just talking about the sheer day-to-day practicalities of trying to get your products into the EU once the Brexit transition period was over and the, and the trade deal was implemented and they talked about things getting stuck at customs for weeks on end you know then customs would ask you for some more paperwork then you'd send the paperwork and you know then the next time you tried the same a shipment of this, exactly the same product or ingredient you'd be asked for a different set of paperwork and you know the customer can wait ages for the product and then they can be charged VAT when the, when it gets there even though it's meant to have been deducted at source you know it's ju- it just sounded really kind of frustrating I think to some extent larger firms have, have sort of found, found ways around some of these things but smaller firms are really struggling and they essentially said to me you know, we've had to suspend selling our products directly to customers in the EU. So I think it's I think it's sort of widely seen by quite a lot of firms as, as creating, you know, really frustrating new barriers. Heather, I almost don't dare ask this, but a key difficult part of the Brexit negotiations was the Northern Ireland Protocol. Where do things currently stand there? And can you remind us why it's so important? It's... <laughs> Super important because it was, you know, Northern Ireland was always going to be a really problematic aspect of the deal because it's the only part of the UK that has a land border with the EU. The way that Boris Johnson dealt with it was to allow checks to be imposed, as it were, down the Irish Sea. So for goods that are going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and and vice versa. The port of Belfast accounts for 64% of Northern Ireland's freight traffic. Half a million trucks a year pass through here, fetching and carrying products between the UK mainland and the island of Ireland. But with Ireland in the EU and the UK now out, new checks, extra paperwork and added costs are inevitable. And lots of companies have complained that it's made things very, very problematic, slowed things down. We have grave concerns. We have grave concerns about our business models. We have grave concerns about choice. We have also grave concerns about affordability for Northern Ireland households. Quite simply, they can't afford cost rises from friction. And what this plan has at the moment is lots of friction. It feels as though the mood music is a little bit more positive. So Rishi Sunak seems to have, um, well, he, he told US President Joe Biden, who has a very strong interest in this issue, We'll try and get it sorted uh, by the spring. So it feels a little bit as if the temperature has come down a bit in those negotiations. And, you know, who knows what's going on behind the scenes. But but I think both sides would quite like a deal. You know, there's a sense that it's holding back relations more broadly. You know, there are lots of other things that the EU and the UK would like to talk about. And at the moment, the EU's sort of line is, you know, not, not while we're in a standoff over, over Northern Ireland. Well, Heather, what did the economists, those much derided experts at the time of the campaign, what did they say about future projections for the UK's economy and how Brexit has affected it one way or the other? You know, the FT does an annual survey of economists and they they suggested that Britain was going to suffer the longest recession of any of the G7 countries. So, you know, we're, we're, we're being hit by the same headwinds as everyone else, but somehow we seem to be being hit by them worse. Um, and, you know, one suggestion is that Brexit has been part of that. Um, some interesting work that an economist called John Sprinkford has done at the Centre for Economic Reform, think tank. He reckons the economy is about 5.5% 
smaller in the middle of last year than it than it would otherwise have been. And the Independent Office for Budget Responsibility has said that Brexit's had a significant adverse effect. That was the phrase it used on trade. Um, uh, you know, effectively, it thinks it's it's made us a little bit more of a closed economy, so a bit less open to the world. I mean, I quite like the way that um, Jonathan Portis, who's who's you know an expert on the. UK and EU economies at, at um, the think tank UK and Changing Europe. He, he's described it recently as a slow puncture for the UK economy. So it's, you know, it's not that we've fallen off a cliff. We haven't. But I guess when you talk to businesses, you just get this sense of, you know, gosh, things are tough enough anyway. COVID's been incredibly difficult. And on top of that, you know, we've got this, these other great headaches that we've got to try and and deal with. But I think it's certainly true to say it's quite hard to find many economists who would, you know, be great cheerleaders at the moment, at least for the the positive impact of Brexit. Heather, we are now several prime ministers on from when those Brexit promises were first made. Now, our current prime minister, Rishi Sunak, has consistently backed Brexit since 2016. What do we know about how he's approaching things now? You know, Boris Johnson and also I think Liz Truss really felt that there were political points to be made in sort of taking on Brussels. Sunak has a bit more of an economic perspective as a former chancellor. You just sense that he's a little bit less combative. I mean, he also, having said that, seems to be trying to press ahead with Jacob Rees-Mogg's brilliant plan of repealing, you know, thousands of bits of EU legislation that protect all kinds of workers' rights and other benefits, hard won over years, you know, this sort of idea of a bonfire of red tape. Um, you know, so he do, he does sort of, he, he loves trying to score a pro-Brexit point, Sunak, but it does feel a little bit as though things are a little bit calmer and he perhaps sees that a slightly more constructive relationship might be good for the economy and, and that in turn would be good for, good for the country, but also probably good for the Conservatives' prospects, right? They're in a pretty dire corner at the moment. Well, if we do get a Labour government, do we know what their vision is on managing a post-Brexit Britain? Obviously, it was a particularly divisive issue for them in the 2019 election. Yeah, it really was. And of course, Keir Starmer was at the forefront of the sort of faction within the Labour Party, which pushed Labour into promising a second referendum. However, after that devastating 2019 election result, he now believes it's done, it's over. There's nothing to be gained really politically by trying to reopen it all, trying to re-enter. So, um, you know, their line is... No, we won't go back into the single market. We won't go back into the customs union. And they have some sort of more modest tweaks, really. It's facilitation rather than um, going back to a very different Brexit deal. And I think that's a lot of that is to do with the politics of immigration. On the political offensive and moving into enemy terrain. Sir Keir Starmer began the new year trying to snatch a slogan he once opposed. Vote leaves Brexit clarion call. Take back control. Control people want is control over their lives and their communities. And Starmer gave this speech quite recently, which was quite controversial, where he talked about the economy's long-term dependence on sort of cheap migrant labour and that maybe that wasn't a great economic model and wasn't the way to go. And there are those in the Labour Party who feel a bit betrayed by that, who would like him to be standing up and saying, you know, let's go back in. Finally, how do you understand Brexit's impact? Well, it's complicated. <laughs> um, and it's very hard to disentangle, as I keep saying, uh, but it's, it's, it's true. It's very hard to disentangle from other, you know, really difficult things that have happened. You know, we, we've lived through the, pa- the COVID pandemic in that time, which has been really sort of jarring and affected everybody's lives and, and, and in particular affected 
the economy, but in terms of economic growth, in terms of trade, um, in terms of spending on public services, it's very, very hard to see those um, sunlit uplands that Boris Johnson and his colleagues talked about in in that um, very hard-fought campaign in 2016. Lisa, in the three years since we have left the EU, it's clear that many of the promises have not been met. The government will point to the pandemic and the war in Ukraine as reasons for economic uncertainty. But from all your reporting, how do you understand the impact of Brexit? I think it's interesting that at at the end of 2022, we started seeing criticism of Brexit from Tory quarters. And I think, you know, through the year, we started getting figures which showed the impact of Brexit, figures that confirm that exports to the EU have gone down. You know, there are difficulties in trade. There's huge difficulties in with labour shortages in, in sectors and hospitality. There are obviously issues in farming. There's issues with the EU funding. So I think 2023 will be a very interesting year for, in terms of Brexit. And I suspect that lots more people who... We're afraid to mention the B word, whether it's the Labour Party or some of the Tory backbenchers will now be emboldened to speak about it and start asking questions about those promises, whether they are being delivered, whether they were realistic. And I think Brexit, in a way, what we're seeing now is the complete lack of planning that went into what would happen post-Brexit. Coming out of the EU after almost 50 years would have consequences you know, nothing could have happened overnight. And yet there was more or less a promise that things would happen overnight. There was a, there was an impression given to the public that things would happen overnight. And I think we're seeing the consequences of that lack of planning now. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Lisa O'Carroll and Heather Stewart. Do follow their reporting and their work on the series Brexit Undone at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Rose Delarabiti, Eva Krisiak and Ned Carter-Miles. Additional research was by Safi Bujal. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Elizabeth Cassin. We'll see you tomorrow. This is The Guardian.